Last Sunday, we began a new teaching series in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, entitled Seven Churches, A Call to Repentance and Reformation. We learned that long before Martin Luther and the Puritans entered the scene and called for churches to repent and reform, the Lord Jesus himself had done this with seven churches in Asia Minor. These churches, with the exception of Smyrna, were engaged in various kinds of sinful behavior, from love loss to lukewarmness. Since the Lord Jesus disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, he sent an angel to communicate a special revelation to the Apostle John through a vision so that John could write it down and send it to these seven churches. The revelation is singular but multifaceted. It contains strong warnings, threats of divine judgment, calls to repentance and reformation, praises and promised blessings. It describes the Lord Jesus' sovereign kingship, His glorious return, His victory over all adversaries, His kingdom. It describes the judgment of the dead, and it describes the destruction of the devil and his demons. And we looked at part one, the prologue and greeting. This morning, we're going to look at part two, the Son of Man. Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1. Our text for this morning will be verses 9 through 20. Let's take a look at verse 9. This is where we left off. John continues by saying, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John begins this section by identifying himself by name. It says, I, John. And interestingly, he identifies himself by name three times in this chapter. We see it in verse 1, we see him do it in verse 4, and we see him do it here in verse 9. He does this all the way at the end of the book in chapter 22, verse 8. So one of the patterns of Revelation is for the author to identify himself by name, which is so interesting because he never does this in the Gospel of John, in which he was also the human instrument behind that. John wants his audience to know that he was the human instrument used to record this revelation. And since John was an apostle, this book has apostolic authority, which means that it must be received as Christian canon or biblical canon. And I say this because there are some Christians throughout the ages who have denied it as being part of the canon. It has apostolic authority because it was written by John, so it must be received as canon, and it must be taken seriously or just as seriously as all the other books in the Bible, as all the other books in the New Testament. Now, John, even though he identifies himself by name in the book of Revelation four times, he does not flaunt his apostolic authority. In other words, he's not writing his name into the, into the sentencing here to flaunt his authority. He's not doing it to try to coerce or motivate Christians to, to do what he wants them to do. He doesn't do that. That's not why he puts his name. He actually refers to himself very humbly. If you notice in the text, he, he identifies himself as a brother. 
he identifies himself as a partner. And then he describes three ways that he's a partner with these churches. First, John is a partner in the tribulation. In the tribulation. What is the tribulation? Well, the, the Greek root word for tribulation is thalipsis, and it means distress. It means affliction. What was causing this distress, this affliction? What was causing this tribulation? It was, very plainly, persecution. And near the end of the first century, Christians were despised in, in multiple ways. They were despised politically because they refused to acknowledge Caesar as the supreme authority. They were despised religiously because they refused to worship the Roman pantheon of gods. They were despised socially because most Christians were from the lower classes in society. They were despised economically because they were seen as a threat by priests and craftsmen and merchants who profited from idol worship. And they were despised superstitiously because Romans feared that neglecting the pagan gods would result in natural disasters. So you basically have Christians within the Roman Empire who would not adhere to all of the things that Romans adhered to. And this caused them to be highly hated, despised. When John wrote Revelation, Domitian was the emperor of the Roman Empire and he instigated an official persecution of Christians. Now this is not to say that the emperors who came before Domitian did not persecute Christians. They did. Titus, Vespasian, and Nero totally persecuted Christians, especially Nero. In 64 AD, a fire burned down two-thirds of Rome, of the city of Rome, and, and in an effort to save his own skin, to pass the buck, to blame someone else, Nero literally blamed the Christian community for this. And as a result, many Christians were arrested and executed. They were used as human candles to light Nero's garden. They were used in the, um, in, the, in the Roman games, and they were devoured by lions and these things that happened. Uh, in fact, uh, under Nero, two very, very notable famous Christians were put to death, and that would be Peter and Paul, those two apostles. But widespread persecution did not come throughout the Roman Empire under Nero. It didn't happen until Domitian became the emperor. When John wrote Thelipses in, in tribulation, or the word tribulation here at the beginning of verse 9, he was referring to the devastating persecution Domitian instigated. It was almost as if Domitian took it to another level by legalizing it. If you've got a Christian that's a neighbor, persecute him. This is how bad it was. And John was experiencing this persecution, and so were the seven churches in Asia Minor, thus making them partners in it. In fact, a, a member of the church at Pergamum had recently been martyred. Uh, his name was uh, Antipas, or Antipas. Antipas, I think, would probably be the right way to pronounce it. Antipas. Why was Antipas put to death? He was put to death because of this persecution, but primarily because he was, as described in chapter 2, verse 13, a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. Jesus acknowledges Antipas in that chapter and, and kind of immortalizes him there. He calls him his faithful servant. This guy was put to death just for loving and following Jesus. So that's how bad it was. 
Second, John is not only a partner in the tribulation, he is a partner in the kingdom, he wrote. Here the term kingdom refers to the the sphere of salvation, the, the redeemed community over which Jesus is Savior and Head. This is the invisible kingdom which exists in the hearts of the Lord's people. Luke chapter 17, verse 21, where Jesus says, The kingdom is in you. John was basically telling these churches that he shares a kinship with them as a fellow member of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And third, John is a partner in the patient endurance. As I said, these churches were suffering great persecution. Some folks were seeking to alleviate it by compromising the truth. Others were holding fast to the word and patiently enduring. John tells them that he is patiently enduring it with them. In other words, I'm a partner in this patient endurance with you. This is what he's telling them. Now in the second half of verse 9, John describes where he was when he received the revelation and why he was there. He was on Patmos. Patmos is a a small Greek volcanic island in the Aegean Sea. It's in the Aegean Sea. It's kind of like the Greek, uh, uh, what do you call it, Alcatraz. Uh, It doesn't have a bunch of structure and building back then, but it's kind of like the the Romans' version of Alcatraz. It was located about 200 miles southeast of Athens and about 45, 46 miles off the coast of Turkey. Now, it's still there today, and that's why I don't want to refer to it in past tense, but it's still there. And and today it's really a tourist destination. It's a significant Christian pilgrimage site. It has a fortress-like monastery that was built in the 11th century. Uh, There is a famous cave there called the Cave of the Apocalypse, where people believe John may have recorded the book of Revelation. And today it has a population of about 3,000 people, which is pretty extraordinary. Now, in John's day, Patmos was, it was barren. And as I said, it was a Roman prison island where convicted criminals in the Roman Empire were sentenced to do hard labor in a rock quarry. The Roman Empire had many prison islands like Patmos. It had a whole bunch of them. And if you know anything about the Greek Isles, there's a lot of them out there in the Aegean Sea. Uh, and, and Rome just had a ton of these islands that were prison islands. John happens to be on Patmos. Why was John exiled and sentenced to hard labor on Patmos? He says, on account of the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. Domitian sent John to Patmos for preaching the gospel. That's why he was there. You know, uh, um, Antipas was put to death for this. John was sentenced to exile on Patmos. Now, Early tradition says that Domitian originally tried to execute John by boiling him in in flaming oil. This is what tradition says. So so if this is true, if this is historically accurate, before John even gets to Patmos, they tried to put him to death by dropping him in a, a vat of flaming oil. But the tradition says that every time they lowered him into this blazing flaming oil, the fire went out. So they would they would dip him like you dip a nugget. They would dip him, the flame would go out. They'd pull him out, the flame would come back on. They would dip him, it would go out. They did this over and over and over, tradition says. 
And so Domitian got tired of it not working. And so what does he do? He sentenced him to Patmos as an exile. So they tried to kill him maybe, but it didn't work. Now MacArthur writes something really interesting here. He kind of describes the conditions. He says, the conditions under which John lived on Patmos would have been very harsh. Exhausting labor under the watchful eye and ready whip of a Roman overseer, insufficient food and clothing, and having to sleep on the bare ground would have taken its toll on the 90-year-old man. Okay. Does anyone have a 90-year-old man in their family? Has anyone seen a 90-year-old man? They're not a spring chicken. Can you imagine being a 90-year-old person and being sentenced to breaking rocks with a hammer in a hot, scorching, dry, hot, and even humid at times region? Dusty. I mean, this would have been horrible for him. John MacArthur describes it as, as uh, the situation was, it was very bleak for him. Under those, and he says, but it's under those brutal conditions that John receives the most extensive revelation of the future ever given. Isn't that amazing how in the midst of such tremendous persecution, in a, in a situation that is seemingly hopeless and brutally physically difficult for this man, he receives this gift from God. I'm telling you right now, in my experience, and in I think church history testifies this, that God does his greatest work in his people under these situations. Where there's ease, that's what's dangerous. But where there's difficulty, where there's struggle, where there's persecution, where there's suffering, what happens with John? What happens with us? We don't receive a revelation like this. The Word of God is finished, it's closed. But I can tell you personally, dear brothers and sisters, that some of the greatest times of growth in my life have been through adversity and difficulty. And I personally am more likely to get myself entangled in foolishness when things are easy. John is under a terrible, he's in a terrible situation, and yet he receives this revelation, which we know was meant to bring him hope, undoubtedly. Now let's move to verses 10 through 11. John continues to describe the situation. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. First thing John tells us here in this next section is that he was in the spirit when he received the revelation. What does it mean to be in the Spirit? If you asked five different Christians what it means, you'd get five different answers, all of which probably inaccurate. It has to do with being under the Holy Spirit's control to the point of being transported to a plane of experience and perception that is way beyond our, our normal human senses. It is um, a totally and absolutely rare occurrence. What I'm telling you is, is that if somebody tells you they've done this today, they're lying to you. 
And you have a lot of that playing out today. John tells us that, that it happened on the Lord's Day, which refers to what? Sunday, right? That's, that's, where, that's where we get that saying from. The Lord's Day is Sunday. It's not Saturday. That's the Jewish Sabbath. That's, that's done away with. Sunday is the Sabbath day now. Sunday is the Lord's Day for Christians. He tells us that it happened on that day. And he tells us that while he was in the Spirit, he heard a loud voice behind him. And it sounded like a trumpet, which means that it was piercing and, and very clear. It doesn't mean that it sounded like a big trumpet blast. It just means that the, that the way that the voice came out, the way that it spoke, was loud and very, very clear. In Revelation, uh, a loud voice or sound indicates the importance of what is about to re be revealed. In other words, in the book of Revelation, if there is a trumpet blast or a loud sound, there is something very, very significant, important that follows it. It's, it's a way of uh, blowing a trumpet to make an announcement. Think of it like that. For instance, in chapter 5, verse 2, we see a mighty angel declare with a loud voice, okay, like a trumpet-like voice. And that angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And the insanely important truth that follows that or answer we see in verse 5. It is the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That's the Lord Jesus. And we are reminded here of, of what happens in, in Exodus 19, which, which speaks to the giving of the law. In verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and, and lightnings and, and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. The loud voice, like a trumpet, commanded John to, to write down what he sees in a book and to send it to the seven churches. He was actually commanded to do this 12 times in the book of Revelation. 12 times he is told to do this. Now, these churches did not have names like churches do today, you know. Big Valley Grace, Shelter Cove, Redemption Hill, uh, Linden First Baptist. They didn't have names. They didn't name the churches. They weren't fancy back then. They didn't name their churches. So... The churches in the text here are identified by their locations or where they were, the cities they were in. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, whose loud voice did John hear? Was this, you know, that sounded like a trumpet, was this the, the voice of the angel who actually gave him this revelation? No. If you have a red-letter Bible, you know the answer. This is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus who is speaking to John here. Now let's move to verse 12. Like anyone would do, John turns around to see. Verse 12, then I turn to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. John really wanted to know whose voice this was. It was piercing like a trumpet. And so obviously he just turns around to look, but he doesn't 
focus on the one speaking at this point. He focuses on seven golden lampstands. Now, people used lampstands like these to light rooms at night. They were very, very common. Here, the seven golden lampstands represent seven churches. Right? If you slide down to verse 20 and look in uh, the middle of it, in the B section, I would call it, 20, verse 20 uh, B, you will see that they are identified as such. And what are churches by nature? What are they? They are lights in the world. Right? Philippians 2.15. What, what are Christians? Christians are the light of the world. Who is Christ? The light of the world. You get the idea here of churches being these lampstands or beacons of light. You think of a, a city on the hill, Jesus described them as. A city on the hill at night can be seen because of how it is lit. You can see it from a great distance. And the some symbolism here is that God uses churches to bring the pure spiritual light of the gospel into, spiritually, into the spiritually darkened world and into specific regions and areas and cities and towns and villages. Now, I want you to notice the color of the lampstands. I mean, it's described here. They were not silver. They were not copper. They were not bronze. All of these alloys were available in the first century. They were none of those. They were... Golden. Gold was the most valuable, precious metal in John's day. And the church is like gold to God. It is the most valuable and precious entity on earth. So valuable that the Lord Jesus was willing to purchase it with his own precious blood. Now... We can move to 13a. John continues to describe what he sees. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. As John was gazing upon the seven golden lampstands, he noticed one like the Son of Man in their midst. The term Son of Man appears in several places throughout the Bible. It basically means ordinary human being. However... In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, this phrase is used to describe a highly exalted human being. In the text there, we see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven and being presented to the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. And, and He has given everlasting dominion or rule. He has given glory and he has given a kingdom in which all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him forever and ever and ever. And Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It appears 90 times in the Gospels. When Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man... He was affirming his humanity. Jesus is a, a son of man in that he was born of a human being, right? The Virgin Mary. He was fully man or a true son of man. And when Jesus referred to himself as the son of God, he was affirming his godness or his, his deity. 
Jesus has always existed as the eternally begotten one, always existed as the second person of the Trinity. He is fully God. He is fully man and he is fully God. He is the son of man and he is the son of God. And when John sees one like a son of man here, he does not see an ordinary human being. He sees the highly exalted person of Daniel 7, the highly exalted person of the Gospels and New Testament, the true Son of Man and true Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John sees him in the midst of the golden lampstands, which means that he is present and moving among his churches which tells us that Jesus is in his churches. And Jesus promised to do this. He promised to remain with us just before his ascension, right? Matthew 28, verse 20, he he declares to the disciples there, and behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. And here in in Revelation 1, we, we see him, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, exalted in full blazing glory, moving in the midst of his churches. How comforting is that to know? MacArthur, again, the living Christ indwells his church to lead and empower it, enabling believers to say triumphantly with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now in verses 13b through 16, John describes the apparel and appearance of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus. Look at it with me. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, long robes were always worn by royalty. And they were worn sometimes by prophets. We see this in... 1 Samuel 24, 4, and, and in 1 Samuel 28, 14. But the Greek root word for robe here is poderes. It is most frequently used in the Septuagint, uh, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe not robes worn by kings, but the robes worn by the high priest. Now, Jesus is undoubtedly the enrobed king of kings, But the long robe in this text points to something else. It points to a different office that he holds. This is his high priestly robe. Why is this? Because the Lord Jesus is the great high priest of his people. Hebrews 4.14 This is an image of the Son of Man who is also the great high priest walking in the midst of his churches with his priestly garments, with his priestly robe. And I'll tell you what, the golden sash around his chest just reinforces this interpretation. Why? Because the high priest wore such a sash. Exodus 28, verse 4. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that our 
great high priest, the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. He sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was tempted like us, yet without sin. Now, if you take that truth and you uh, combine it with verse 13, you've got the great high priest, the Lord Jesus, moving sympathetically in the midst of his churches, comforting and caring for his people. That's what he's doing here. Now, John's description of the Lord Jesus' hair is similar to Daniel's description of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7.9, where he said, the hair of his head was like pure wool. This parallel description affirms the deity of the Lord Jesus. If the Ancient of Days has a a head of hair like wool and, and the Lord Jesus has it, what does that mean? They're both God. In the Bible, white hair symbolizes knowledge and wisdom. It doesn't always in our day, right? Just because somebody has gray hair doesn't necessarily mean they're wise. Uh, But in the Bible, it did. It kind of symbolized that knowledge and wisdom or experience. The Lord Jesus' hair is white, his wool, like that of God the Father. Because why? He possesses the, the divine attributes of holy knowledge and holy wisdom. The Greek root word for white here is leukos, and it means brilliant blazing and or blazing. I don't know why I wrote that. I wrote blazing twice. It must be very important. It really blazes. The idea here is that the the white wool-like hair of the Lord Jesus was brilliant and, and blazingly bright, thus symbolizing his eternal, glorious, holy truthfulness. And John doesn't stop there. He tells us that his his eyes were like a flame of fire. They weren't on fire. They were like a flame of fire. This means that the Lord Jesus sees with piercing clarity. His gaze penetrates the very depths of his people and his churches. It means that the Lord Jesus will not fail to see, recognize, and deal with sin in his church. It means that nothing is hidden from his sight, and he will chasten whom he loves. If this is true, then why do churches that have very obviously deviated from Scripture remain seemingly untouched and continue on and on and on in their apostasy, in their error? But if the Lord Jesus sees everything that's going on in his churches, then why do so many churches abandon scripture, do crazy, crazy things that cause all of our hair to rise. They just remain untouched, unscathed, and they keep going and they keep perpetuating the errors. How does this happen if the Lord Jesus can do this? Why do these churches keep doing what they're doing? Well, I think that it could be, firstly, because maybe the Lord Jesus is patiently dealing with them and waiting for them to realize their error and repent of it. Because we mustn't forget that the Lord is long-suffering. And I think more times than other, it's the second option here. It could be that the Lord Jesus does not recognize these as his churches at all. And he just leaves them alone as a kind of judgment. He just lets them do what they do, the shenanigans, the ridiculousness, and lets them do that, kind of sealing them in that reprobation, in that depravity. He just leaves them. I certainly hope that for the majority of them, and we know some churches are just not going to repent, 
but that it's the first option, that he's patiently waiting for them to realize what's going on and to repent. But I think in so many cases, it's the opposite of that. They are not his churches. Just because it says the church of Jesus Christ doesn't mean it's the church of Jesus Christ. Just because Jesus Christ is in the title of the church or in the mission statement doesn't mean that it is a true church. Jesus himself said those who did a whole lot of things in his name, away from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Go off into Hades. So just because it uses our jargon, it uses our Bibles, doesn't mean it belongs to him. And John continues to tell us that his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a fire. Kings in ancient times sat on elevated thrones, so those being judged by them would literally be beneath their feet. And I'm reminded of the wonderful scripture that talks about the enemies of Christ being made his footstool to be under his feet. Remember that text? That's the idea. And over time, the feet of a king came to symbolize his authority. Here, the appearance of the Lord Jesus' feet represents his chastening authority as he moves through his churches. And John tells us that that the voice of the Lord Jesus was like the, the roar of many waters. Now, the voice that he heard here coming, proceeding from the Son of Man, from Jesus, it reminded John of something very familiar to him, and that would have been the crashing waves against the rocky shores of Patmos, especially during a storm. This voice like the roar of many waters, it is the voice of sovereign power. It is the voice of of supreme authority. When, When the Lord Jesus speaks, the church must listen to him. It must listen. It must obey. You remember what God the Father said during the transfiguration of Jesus. You remember that moment where Jesus in in humble flesh was transformed and transfigured into his glorious state before just a, a handful of apostles. Do you remember the voice that boomed forth from the sky, from heaven? It said this. This is what the Father said. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do what? Listen to him. Matthew 17, 5. You remember that old commercial when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Just totally dated myself. But when the Lord Jesus speaks, the church must listen, must listen. And lastly, John describes the Lord Jesus' right hand, his mouth, and his face. He says, in his right hand he held Seven stars. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, verse 20b. The Greek word for angels is angeloi. Uh, It can refer to a number of things, but it usually refers to literal angels, which has led many interpreters of this text to conclude that that is the meaning here, that these are literal angels. The problem with this interpretation is the New Testament does not teach that angels are involved in any capacity with the leadership of the church. Angels do not have a role in the leadership of any churches. According to 1 Timothy 5, 17, churches are led by what? Presbyteros, elders, not angeloi. Plus, why would an angel give John, a human being, a message to give to other angels? 
That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Angels need no assistance from human beings when it comes to communicating with one another. In the Bible, we see angels talking to other angels and, and angels talking to men, but we never see angels talking to other angels through men. We never see that. John could not have been referring to actual angels here. Angeloi can also be translated as messengers. It is translated in this way in Luke 7.24, in James 2.25. That is the meaning here. Angeloi means messengers here. The Lord Jesus holds in his right hand seven messengers. Who were these messengers? Well, since they're associated with the leadership of these churches, and since the Lord Jesus holds them in his right hand, which symbolizes his protection, right? John 10, 28. They must be elders from each of these churches. The Lord Jesus, in this vision, holds within his hand an elder from each of the seven churches. That's the way to look at it. And I tell you what, it is so comforting for me, and probably for Bruce and Cameron and any other elder... It's comforting for us to know that the Lord Jesus holds his, his true elders, his true leaders in the palm of his hand as a means to protect and guide them. That brings me tremendous comfort. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is the primary weapon of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wields it against all external and internal enemies of his beloved church. It proceeds from his mouth, which tells us what it actually is. What comes from the Lord Jesus' mouth? His word. His word is what? Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, right? One of my favorite passages, Hebrews 4.12. MacArthur again says, Those who attack Christ's church, those who would sow lies, create discord, or otherwise harm his people, will be personally dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ of the church. His word is potent and will be used against the enemies of his people so that all the power of the forces of darkness, including death itself, will be unable to prevent the Lord Jesus Christ from building his church. And John's vision of the Lord Jesus walking and in, in, in the midst of his church, it then culminates with a majestic glory as he sees what? His face shining like the sun in full strength. That must have been a sight. John probably had to cover his face and eyes. Now, this is not the first time that John had seen this. He saw it during the transfiguration, right, where it says, and his face shone like the sun, Matthew 17, 2. And the church is to reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus to the world. And it does this when it obeys his commands. But when it disobeys his commands, it reflects something else. It reflects the world, back to the world. It reflects the enemy of all that is good and righteous, the devil. Now, how did John respond to this vision of the glorified Lord Jesus? 17a, he says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John became 
absolutely terrified and dropped at the Lord's feet like a dead man. Terror or fear like this was the standard for those who experienced such unusual heavenly visions. Daniel is one that had a kind of a similar vision here, and he describes himself as having no strength. Daniel 10, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah had a pretty spectacular vision of, of God, and how did he respond? He responded, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, of a people who have unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 6, 5. Ezekiel experienced some heavenly visions. His response was always the same. He fell on his face. <laughs> Ezekiel 1, 28, 3, 23. Chapter 9, verse 8, 43, verse 3, and 44, verse 4. What happened to Saul of Tarsus when he saw the glorified Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus? He started doing jumping jacks and running around with flags. No, he actually fell to the ground and lost his eyesight for three days. Acts 9, 3 through 9. People in certain church circles today, they are always boasting about seeing God or seeing the glorified Lord Jesus, but their reactions to these visions that they claim to have, they never, ever, ever line up with Scripture. There is no terror. There is no fear. There is no falling prostrate on their faces. There is no realization of their sinful unworthiness. There are no desperate pleas for mercy. In other words... The pattern they exhibit has nothing to do with the pattern that Scripture establishes for one when they actually see God. Instead, these folks dance around like maniacs, scream unintelligible gibberish, and mock and blaspheme the God they claim to love and worship. It's very sad. You ever heard the story of R.C. Sproul when he was converted? Uh, he was actually at seminary as an unbeliever, and one night it was raining and freezing and cold outside, and he, he was awoken, he believes, by the Spirit of God, and he was led into the worship hall at his college, and it was dark and, and blustery outside, and just it was just crazy, and he goes in, there's no candles, no lighting in the building, and he goes in, and he believes, he believes that he was somehow in the presence of God, not like in this vision way, but he doesn't say that he saw God or a vision, but he believes that the presence of God was there and, and he falls on his face in terror and he's converted. What you see today is Hollywood. What you see today is designed to create the appearance of something that God is doing to bring attention to those particular churches. Pardon me, let me back up, to those particular places. So what we see today is not real. Let's move to 17b through 18. And he says this, But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The Lord Jesus begins by placing his hand on John and commanding him not to fear. 
During my study time the other day, I was pondering what this must have looked like. I, I can see in my mind's eye John laying flat on his belly with his, with his head toward Jesus' feet, and I can see Jesus just kind of reach down and put his hand on his shoulder. John, it's okay. I haven't come to judge you. Have no fear. You can rise to your feet. And the basis for John's comfort, it's rooted in who the Lord Jesus is and in the authority he possesses. That's what's described in the next line. After commanding John to fear not, he declared, I am. I am is the covenant name of God. Exodus 3.14. Jesus applied this covenant name for God to himself here in this text, and at least seven times in the Gospel of John. Do you remember the I am statements? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. Do you remember those statements? The Lord Jesus, again, identifies himself as I am, taking on the covenant name for God. And the Lord Jesus also identified himself as the first and the last. This is an Old Testament title that is used to describe the eternality of God. When you see it in the Old Testament, it is God referring to himself as being the eternal one. God is first, which means he has always existed. He was before all of creation. He is last, which means that he has always existed and will always exist. And then lastly, the Lord Jesus identified himself as the living one. This is yet another title for God that appears throughout Scripture. The pagan deities were made from wood and stone. They could not hear nor speak. They were but dead idols. But the God of Israel is the living one. He is the living God. He is alive, which means that he hears and he speaks. And he even dwelled among his people, right? His abode on earth was the tabernacle and then the temple. By applying the covenant name of God and two titles for God to himself, the Lord Jesus was claiming full equality with God. In other words, he was declaring his deity. And he gives an, an illustration that proves this truth in the very next line, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. When Jesus died on the cross, his humanness died, not his deity. Okay, I like to think of it like this. When Jesus died on the cross, the Son of Man, his humanity died, but the Son of God did not die. Why? Because God is immortal. He cannot die. Habakkuk 1.12, 1 Timothy 6.16 I like what John Gill wrote here. He said, in death, he was always alive as God. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a truth like the Trinity that just pops my noggin. I don't understand how that works. Think of this. When Jesus rose from the grave on the third day, he literally raised himself to life. Maybe you've never thought about that before. Maybe it sounds a bit strange, but you don't want to forget Jesus' very important statement in John 10, 18. What did he say? He said, I have authority to lay down my life and authority to take it up again. The Son of Man died on the cross. Three days later, the Son of God, the same person, 
raised the Son of Man back to life. That's incredible. When Jesus raised his physical body to life, he also glorified it and made it immortal. And what? Now he is alive forevermore. The fact that he died as a man and raised himself from the dead and lives forevermore proves what? That he is God. We see the last piece of evidence for his deity at the end of verse 18. He says, And I have the keys of death and Hades. God alone has authority to decide who lives, who dies, and where they go when they die. The keys that are mentioned here represent his divine authority over life, death, and destination. Since Jesus has the keys, that means that he possesses this divine authority, which means what? He must therefore be God. Now, it must have brought John great comfort to hear the Lord Jesus declare these things about himself. And so much of what Jesus said here in Revelation 1 sounds a lot like what he preached and said in the Gospel of John. And I'll tell you what, rock-solid doctrinal truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ is total and absolute medicine for a weary soul. It is. Psalm 119 verse 28 talks about this. John needs this medicine because he's terrified and he's suffering on Patmos and he's hearing Jesus describe and declare these magnificent truths about his godness. And I tell you what, this had to have brought John great comfort in this moment. Now we come to our last section. In verses 19 through 20, the Lord Jesus commissions John and clarifies a couple of things for him. Let me read it. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In verse 19, the Lord Jesus commissioned John to write down three things. Write down what you see in this vision Write down what is happening in these churches and write down what will take place in the future. In other words, write down the entire revelation. That's basically what Jesus is telling him. In verse 20, the Lord Jesus graciously decodes the mysterious symbolism in verse 12 and verse 16. He just simply says the seven stars represent the seven angels. Those are the elders of these churches. And... Obviously, he describes to John the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. Now, the seven elders and and churches were the specific target here for the book of Revelation. And it was John's duty to not only write everything down, but to make sure that each elder and church received a copy of this revelation. That's what he is to do. That's his commission. And like John, we have a duty to pass on the truths we learn from the visions recorded in the book of Revelation. We have a a duty, we have a commission to proclaim the truths that we see in these visions here. It's our job to do that, like John was charged with that. It is also our responsibility to do that. And you might be thinking, well, aren't we to go out and preach the gospel? Is not the gospel represented in this text? Earlier, it talks about how Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins. 
It talks about how he was dead and how he is alive forevermore. You've got the death, burial, and resurrection right there. We are to go out and proclaim not just the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the whole counsel of God's word. Unbelievers need to hear these things. They need to know that the Lord Jesus is coming back. They need to know that they will face the great white throne judgment. They need to know that even prior to that, they will be cast into Hades. They need to know these things. They need to know he's coming back any moment. That's what we learned last week. Unbelievers need to hear this. There's an urgency in the text here. And I know you're thinking, well, it's been about 2,000 years. He hasn't come yet. But he could come on Tuesday. You don't know when he's going to come back. And just because it's been a while doesn't mean he's going to tarry any longer. There is an urgency here. Unbelievers need to have read to them Revelation 1. But unbelievers aren't the only ones that need to hear the truths here through us. Wayward churches need to hear these truths, do they not? Do you think today there are more wayward churches than right churches? I do. These are scary times in church history. Apostasy is rampant. It's everywhere. It's not just in the things that I've already described with the hoopla and running around and fake tongues and everything else. That's apostasy. But that's not the only kind of apostasy. There are a lot of forms of apostasy. All you have to do to be an apostate is just add a little bit to salvation. Well, it's faith plus baptism apostasy. You're a church that needs to hear this. I mean, we are going to analyze the seven churches. We are going to look at the errors. We are going to discover what they were doing and what needs to be corrected. And it wouldn't surprise me if we find a touch of what's there in this church. Unbelievers need to hear it. Wayward churches need to hear it. And guess what? Faithful churches need to hear these things, don't they? By God's grace, I consider our church to be a faithful church. We've had good elders since day one, and they helped to... Keep us in the Word and keep us going where we should be going, following the Lord Jesus, doing what He commands us to do. That's, that's a huge blessing to this church. And we have great congregates here that are just recklessly sold out for Jesus and only want Jesus and aren't interested in all the shenanigans. Praise God for that. But there are not just corrections and warnings here in these visions. There are encouragements the faithful church needs to know. They're persecuted. Unfaithful churches are not persecuted. There's no reason to persecute them. They're doing Satan's bidding. Faithful churches are the churches that are persecuted. So guess what they need to hear? They need to hear that Jesus is among the lampstands. They need to hear about the robe and the sash of Jesus because he is not just this mighty king of kings. He is also the great high priest who cares and who suffers with his people. Did he not tell Saul of Tarsus, why do you persecute me? Saul must have been thinking, I've never persecuted you. I've persecuted Christians. By persecuting Christians, you persecute me. Faithful churches need to hear this. They need to be bolstered. They need to be built up. They need to be exhorted and encouraged. Press on. We with you are patiently enduring this tribulation. And I believe tribulation is going to fall on America like never before. It is coming, friends. Are we ready for it? Will we patiently endure those that are already experiencing this, the faithful do they know that we love them? Do they know the truths of these visions? Are we sharing these truths with them? 
we have a duty to pass on the truths, just as John had a duty to do that. Who will you share them with this week? Tell someone about the truths that you've learned.